I Am The Fly is a podcast about a brief time in the late 20th century, when a cassette tape ran 90 minutes but held infinite promise, when drugs went suburban and parents didn't helicopter, when stars walked among us but you couldn't even prove it. I Am The Fly, David Klein, guiding you through the pre-digital past on a pair of warped wings. In this episode, it's the last day of ninth grade. Let's take some acid. An improvement in David's attitude would be in order during the spring term. David tends to be unnecessarily defensive about receiving grades that do not correspond to what he feels he deserves. I wish David would become more interested in improving the quality of his work than just in raising his cumulative average. A.H. Black, ninth grade English teacher, semester two report card, February 1977. Thanks to the pot bust, my combativeness, and a general slide in school performance, my parents enrolled me at Dwight Englewood, the same prep school where Johnny had been sent two years earlier. The differences were clear at once. Academic standards were higher, and by and large, my new classmates came from wealth, often from old money. Their homes struck me as older and classier than the gaudy offerings on Tenafly's East Hill, and they all knew how to ski. Wearing the wool and corduroy duds required by the school dress code made me feel instantly more accountable. But the Gothic architecture and higher level of rigor didn't turn me into a better student. It wasn't that I lacked an interest in books or learning. If a love of music was Dad's gift to me, my love of J.D. Salinger and the knowledge that certain authors were gods among men came to me through Mom, who spoke of Jerome David in the same hushed tones she reserved for Jess Stacy's solo at Carnegie Hall, Sinatra's phrasing, and Pauline Kael's movie reviews. One of Mom's few flights of fanciful behavior was ending a sentence with Buddy, a signature turn of phrase from the male half of Franny and Zooey. When I'd come to certain lines from nine stories that I knew to be Mom's favorites, A Stunning and Final Girl, for example, or It Isn't Often We Have Visitors in Our Little Chapel, I'd think of Mom in a sort of moved way. I wanted to write like J.D., just like I wanted to play guitar like Jerry G., but wanting to only gets you so far. Mr. Black gave me a B-minus on my report on The Catcher in the Rye, and he was probably being generous. My mind just wasn't on my work. Spring was in the air, and girls were my obsession. So was Pink Floyd's Animals, and Pot, and Getting Away With Stuff. Some seniors kind of befriended me, guys I looked up to, who had reputations and sideburns and cars to drive and didn't behave like jerky kids anymore. Jed Resnick, a massive football player, took me out riding in his 260Z during free periods and once obligingly stepped out of the car to put the fear of death into a couple of douches I used to know in Tenafly. I cracked wise with lanky, blonde-tressed Neil Flam, who was famous for totaling his brand new TR7 and allegedly getting a blowjob while in traction and not even by his girlfriend, 
It was just Neil's good luck to be a popular, good-looking, long-haired, blonde guy in the late 1970s. I would also miss those long-haired, center-parted senior girls. Jean, for instance, who made outstanding charcoal sketches in art class and smoked parliaments and took me for rides in her powder-blue Pontiac Le Mans. Jean's voice was soft, low, uninflected. If she had been a folk singer, she would have had no vibrato. One of her core beliefs was that high school was just a game, and most of our classmates were game players, and you just had to know how to play the game. The last day of school was purely ceremonial. We walked around signing each other's yearbooks, a mutual impatience to just get out of this shithole, uniting us spiritually. But secretly, I was feeling something not the least bit cool, a sweet sadness that the end of a party had come just as things were getting good. Those senior girls sure were a trip. One of them had mangled the Beatles in my yearbook. Davy boy, as the stars wander throughout the sky, and you watch the plasticine porters with looking glass eyes, remember, life is only what you make it. Please be happy and enjoy, and always let it flow. You have to remember, though it was the end of the decade, only a few years from the 80s, the twin blasts of punk and disco hadn't dispelled the fog of peace and love vibes that lingered from the 60s like the patchouli of a thousand hippies. The yearbook pages of graduating seniors were chock full of quotations by Khalil Gibran, Kurt Vonnegut, Richard Braudigan, Joni Mitchell, and others who enunciated the ethos of the self-celebrating 70s. I asked Jean to sign my yearbook, but she was just getting off on a hit of acid and couldn't deal, which only added to the sort of weird, sad goodbye feeling that day. School let out around noon, and though I knew of festivities happening immediately afterward, I was feeling subdued and introspective. Letting gravity do the work, I ambled in a kind of daze down Palisade Avenue, not fighting the hazy, late spring torpor, Fleetwood Mac's dreams zephyring through my mop of crazy hair. I caught a bus at Grand Avenue and took it home, where I stripped off my school duds and dithered for hours until Johnny called. A bunch of people were over at Kruger's house, including Chris Clendenin, who still had a few acid doses left, so I had better get over there quick. I had been waiting for my first trip for a long time. Since Uncle Mike sent me the Snappy Sammy Smoot Visits the Intergalactic World Brain issue of Zap Comics, in which this naive but natty bon vivant and man about town takes LSD and sees God. I imagine taking LSD would be like entering a cartoon and having profound insights. I was seven, though, so this would have to wait. Until high school, anyway. Until now. Johnny had gotten there first, of course, and his intensely poetic descriptions of iron-gray clouds that shape-shifted into enormous gongs that struck themselves in time to Eddie Harris and Les McCann's Trying to make it real compared to what Come on, baby of a book of Renaissance paintings that turned into a web of movies within movies within movies stoked my curiosity even more. The highest I'd ever been up to this point was extremely We took a bunch of homegrown pot, heated it in a frying pan per the instructions Johnny found in a book, ground it to a dark powder, 
tossed it in honey, and gobbled it up, rendering us astoundingly next-dimension wasted for Kentucky Fried Movie. The popcorn you're eating has been pissed in. Film at 11. If that was base camp, I was now headed for the summit. The only wild card was Kruger. One morning while still in grammar school, I went over to Tony D's to play. I was there a lot, because spending the day or sometimes the night at Tony D's house was easy. His home was not fussily clean, just nice and lived in. They left the butter dish out on the oilcloth-covered kitchen table at all times, and an unframed poster scotch taped to the wall in the kitchen said, That he not busy being born is busy dying. Tony's household vibe spoke to the variety of experience in our small town like nothing else. When my father might be found at Willow Run, purchasing bags of bovang fertilizer for his tomato plants, Tony's dad was still in his bathrobe, propped up in bed and watching Hogan's Heroes, his booming laugh audible behind the closed door of Tony's bedroom, even as we listened to Death on Two Legs by Queen. Tony, the oldest of three dark-eyed boys with the same brown bowl cut, had an unyielding competitive streak. The two of us could never just shoot hoops. We had to play one-on-one, -on -one, and he had to win. Usually he did, but when he lost by one point, he'd throw a fit. Tony would argue about anything and refused to concede on even the most idiotic point of contention. He insisted that the chorus of Redbone's Come and Get Your Love, a wonderful and inescapable single from 1974, was actually Come and Gift of Love, which made no sense. The phrase is clearly enunciated several dozen times, but Tony maintained that I was the one who was wrong and that it did make sense. The brothers in Redbone, Pat and Lolly Vegas, were singing about a gift of love that had not yet been delivered, a coming gift of love. Eventually, you just had to let him win. When I arrived at his house that day, Tony was not home. I found him a few doors down East Clinton, where he and a kid I knew from Little League as Gary Krug were in the midst of a rough mini-football catch on the slope of Krug's well-tended front lawn. Oh yeah? Chuck. Yeah. Chuck. You like that? Harder, Chuck. Not bad. How about this? Harder, Chuck. At some point, Tony prefaces his throw with a new riff. Oh yeah, he says. I'm not as scared of you. Like a shot, Kruger takes off across the lawn. Tony sprints away from him, doing crazy swerves around hedges. But Kruger is devilishly quick. He gets Tony around the waist, pulls him down hard onto the grass, and pins him under denim-covered knees just like that. Kruger, barely breathing hard, leans his square-shaped face in close. What was that, Del Greco? Didn't quite catch that. I said, I'm not, I'm scared of you, says Tony. 
I don't want to watch. I'm petrified, Tony blurts, quivering wide-eyed like a cartoon character for emphasis. A moment of lethal silence passes before Kruger emits a short sibilance by way of a laugh. After a beat, he moves off Tony, submission having been duly, if belatedly, rendered. The impression lingers, and when I get to junior high, I know to steer clear of Kruger. But Tommy Roberts deals a little weed on the side, junior businessman that he is, and it doesn't escape the notice of Kruger, who's a little like the mob now. He hears things. Some kids deal in reefer, good stuff too, and right under his nose? Makes him look bad. He needs his cut. One day Tommy's twirling his locker combination and Kruger materializes phantom-like at his side. The hallway is empty. Tommy's praying someone walks by, but it's just that eerie institutional echo. I hear you got some good stuff, he says. That right, Tom? Tommy pauses with one number to go. Why are you stopping? You don't trust me? Tommy has no words. Tell you what, you let me hold on to the stuff, real low key. I'll make sure nothing happens to it. Well, this is sheer insanity. Tommy does not want to lose his investment, but he does not want to fight Kruger either, and he'll have to if he defies this intimidation. You want to fuck with me, Roberts? Is that what you want to do? Fuck with Gary Krug? No, man. I, I, I'm not trying to. I fucked with the angels, Tom. You hear what I'm saying? And so Tommy hands over the reefer, the deciding factor being Kruger's fantasy threat referencing the notorious motorcycle gang. Who knows? Maybe this is God's way of talking him out of dealing drugs, which Tommy knows on some level is a fairly serious sin. A week or so later, on the way to class, he spots Kruger coming his way in the crowded hallway. Tommy figures he has nothing to lose and plays his hand. Thanks for holding on to that reef, but I, I need it back now. Sorry, man, says Kruger with a shrug. Stash got raided. Almost got busted myself. But I can get some for you, though. Good stuff, too. Tommy takes him up on it, and Kruger sells him his pot back at an insider price. When I get to Dwight Englewood, I find that Kruger has been sent there too, and since there are only so many social circles and parties to go to, Kruger is unavoidable. I have trouble squaring his sociopathic coldness with the fact that his father is a medical man, the chief of surgery at a major New York hospital and famous for some techniques he's developed. That is, until I discover that having a doctor for a father isn't a stamp of anything in particular. All of my new partners in crime are doctor's sons. Theo, my first best pal there, sort of the mayor who showed me around, his dad's a GP. Apple's father is a prominent ENT. They live in a palatial homestead with a butler, a maid, and a whole extra house on the property. Kenny Whitlock and Brian Vent, cranky frenemies from Tenafly, are the spawn of cranky gastroenterologists. Hell, Julian Javier, who got kicked out in the first trimester for pot and who will eventually be expelled from the public high school for taking a swing at the principal, is the son of an internist. A good one, too, according to my father. Then again, as doctor's sons with a fixation on the Grateful Dead, Kruger and I aren't so far apart. Both of us accept the mythos of the band's concerts, that the songs they choose to play, the uniqueness of each rendering, and a certain X factor makes each concert almost a blessed event. Both of us yearn to be at a Grateful Dead show with a Baroque set list and a heavy, heavy weirdness factor. 
I will always be wary of him, but the circle is wide if you want to party with the big boys. A half dozen cars line the circular driveway outside Kruger's house. I spot the distinctive wedge shape of Neil Flam's replacement TR7, and Chris Clendenin's beat-up Opal with its dancing bear bumper sticker and books piled high in the rear, and Kenny Whitlock's green muscle wagon, a 1970 Buick estate foolishly equipped with a pair of BF Goodrich 15-inch diameter rear tires. What a dope. Having blown all his savings on the mag wheels, which do nothing at all, Kenny stuck with the crappiest standard-issue AM radio on the market. Still, whenever a not-terrible song comes on over the tiny speakers, Bob Seger or Steve Miller say, Kenny reaches for the tone dial and makes minute adjustments. As if that makes a damn bit of difference. After a tentative knock draws no response, I step inside. Chris and Kruger are exchanging words in front of a vast oil painting of Mrs. Krug clad in fox hunting gear. Chris is into Kerouac and the Beats and Mayan gods. Kruger despises reading, school, and pussies, roughly in that order. Yet he and Chris are on good terms because Chris's supply of clean liquid acid necessitates a coalescence. Chris's connection is his brother Joe, who's in his mid-twenties, yet part of an extended social circle that emanates outward from Chris and his clique of senior year stoners to include freshman upstarts like me. Joe Clendenin has a strong Jerry Garcia vibe, the charismatic beard, the corona of dark hair, and behind wireframe glasses, his eyes have the twinkle. In my mind, Joe embodies the best elements of Captain Tripps, Sergeant Pepper, and the Cheshire Cat. Recounting a particular Grateful Dead concert, or an episode involving heavy intake of psychedelics, his sentences trail off, replaced by an animated facial expression, raised eyebrows and wide open eyes, a touch of cosmic Groucho Marx, implying that there are no words to describe the phenomenon to which he refers. Kruger keeps his strawberry blonde hair cut in a modified page boy and is known to carry a plastic styling comb in his back pocket. He wears a tight t-shirt reading Deadheads and Cowboys and showing an image of the Dead's tragic original founding keyboardist, Ron Pigpen McKernan, which emphasizes his sinewy build. That was some fucked up shit right there, pal, Kruger is saying. The fuckers played sugary for 20 fucking minutes, man. I shit you not, Chris, man. I shit you not. Have you ever seen the Grateful Dead play sugary for 20 fucking minutes? Oh, I, I can't say that I have, says Chris giving him a flash of cosmic groucho behind horn-rimmed glasses. Jerome John Garcia must have been on some heavy LSD-25 that night, Kruger says. Some of that good, good stuff. And while we're on that subject, he adds, grinning, speaking of which, in reference to... Huh? Some more of those cubes, pal. Oh, ah, of course. But but what happened to the that Visine bottle? Gone, man, gone! and nothing's going to bring it back. I was down to my last few drops last night, so I set my alarm for 5 a.m., squeezed the last of that shit into my eyes, took a Valium, and woke up tripping. No shit, says Chris, sounding genuinely taken aback, then bowing slightly and removing a baggie from his front pocket. Grotty, Kruger says. The previous summer, Kruger's parents sent him to some kind of outward-bound-style wilderness program for troubled teens 
and he'd returned with his faux Italian shtick. Chris responds dutifully with, Prego. This is my cue. Got one for me, Chris? Well, well, well. Little Klein. Bro's friends like to call me Little Klein, which is redundant. Klein meaning small in German. Et tu, Brute, I respond nonsensically. Well, in that case, Chris dips into the Ziploc, pulls out a cube, and hands it to me. Happy trails, little Klein. The first one's on the house. I do not munch this magical morsel immediately, and I'm relieved Chris doesn't expect me to reflexively down his gift in a peer pressury way. I stow it in my front shirt pocket, wrapped in a dollar bill, behind a half-filled soft pack of merits, and see if I can sense any acid vibes happening. Joe Clendenin talks about vibes a lot. He'll tell you about the vibes he got the other day, indicating that people were tripping somewhere nearby. He's just tooling along Route 17 in his Austin Healy, glancing through the passenger window and seeing little pings and phosphorescence emanating from just beyond the rise. To hear Joe tell it, the psychedelic mindset entails a kind of magical thinking, one that imbues trippers with the power of remote viewing, the ability to deduce things normally beyond sensory perception. It's almost as if ingesting these rarefied molecules gives you temporary superpowers. People are spread throughout Kruger's house, a few in every room, but I'm not getting any acid vibes, which is odd for a supposed acid party. And where the hell is my brother? Lately, a touch of remoteness has crept into our public interactions. Privately, we still have our secret life, our smoke-friendly dog walks followed by late-night listening sessions in Johnny's basement lair. We lean toward epics, like Pink Floyd's Umagama and Side 2 of Bebop Deluxe's Modern Music. But he's starting to befriend people he deems heavy personages and no longer tolerates my adolescent goofiness and lack of social savvy when he's out with his cool friends. At the far end of the main hallway is a door with a sign that reads, No trespassing. Violators will be shot. Survivors will be shot again. Behind it is Kruger's cozy wood-paneled teen crib. Framed by two sets of bunk beds, a large steamer trunk in the middle is laden with smoking accoutrements and copies of Rolling Stone. His stereo system is powered by a sleek, blue-lighted Pioneer amp, even when his folks are around, you imagine Kruger can do whatever he wants in here, short of burning it down. Kenny and Brian Vent, known as Ventricle, are sprawled inside, with cigarettes and a joint going. Kenny's an odd duck, a would-be hard guy. His yearbook quote was, Only the good, good women get to drink with the boys. I left his dead ass there by the side of the road, said Ventricle. Bobby says it clearly. No fucking way. Just listen, Kenny says. Just listen. He cues it up, the last line of the last verse of Me and My Uncle, from the live Grateful Dead LP officially titled, wait for it, Grateful Dead, but known to devout deadheads as Skullfuck. At the operative moment, Kenny can't help from emphasizing his point. There, side of the room. Now how am I supposed to fucking hear it with you fucking singing over it, moans Ventricle. In pops Kruger like a phantom. 
You two stoners at it again for crying out loud. Breaking out his best Bob Weir, Kruger sings, And he left his dead ass dead by the side of the road. Now how many times do I got to tell you? Next question. Kenny gives Ventricle a satisfied look, because Kruger agrees, and they always defer to the psycho. Slightly nasal, mixing southern drawl and a valley boy's torqued inflection, his words strung together in peculiar shapes, Kruger's way of speaking is self-invented, like something he dreamed up one morning after squirting acid in his eyes the night before to play a character named Kruger in a psychedelic western exploitation movie. You take your hit yet, Davy? He says, fixing his small green eyes on me and cracking a mirthless grin. Uh, not yet. Well, what's the holdup? Come on, pal. I'll even join you. The thing is, Kruger isn't always a bully or a psycho. He's actually given me rides to school a few times on the back of his moped, my arms clasped around his torso, the two of us leaning into turns together. I'm wary of him, but we are friends of a sort. And so this strong jolt of peer pressure, combined with my zeal to make this night a special one, and my genetic predisposition to shrug and say what the hell, outweighs a not inconsiderable sense of trepidation. Kruger and I tap sugar cubes like in a toast. Now that's more like it, Davy. The stuff comes on gradually. Everybody says that. So I keep my restlessness at bay with one of Kruger's Tomy toys push-button-operated, water-based amusements encased in clear plastic. This one is based on ring toss. I'm dying for one of the little wafted lozenges to turn into an asteroid, or a fish, or maybe even Mickey Mouse, but they keep on being boring little lozenges. As I play, the weight of the day makes itself known, and finally I put down the game, close my eyes, and pass into a low-grade dream state, while maintaining a trace awareness of the room around me, of comings and goings. Someone puts on Pink Floyd's animals, and I'm in heaven. Maybe I feel something. A twinge? Maybe it's just my favorite album at work. No, it's more than that. As side one unfolds, things around me begin to glisten. Then, the major thrill. Behind my closed eyes, a new and improved print of Fantasia is showing. I'm spellbound as a symphony of dancing pyramids perform pas de deux in accompaniment with David Gilmour's thrilling, throbbing, piercing solo. Which builds to a screaming high note as true as a blade. And then all the dancing orbs come together and explode into impossibly intricate, rainbow-colored fractals. Time, or whatever you want to call it, does its thing. And when I rouse myself and assume an upright position, the silence is so thick with the pinging and popping of atoms, I can almost taste the night. 
I'm alone except for Kruger, who's passed out on one of the lower bunks. At first the dose was like a foreign substance, like a new set of shoes. Now I've walked around in my acid shoes, and I'm ablaze with the stuff. Kruger stirs, and goddamn, am I relieved for human company. Even if it's the guy who forced my buddy Theo to accompany him to a Jefferson Starship show at Nassau Coliseum under pain of a major beating because the Bob Weir band was the opening act and he had no one else to go with and still called him a pussy the whole time. I'm ready to talk the ear off this likely sociopath, only he does not look capable of listening. Kruger, I now recall, woke up tripping. Kruger has to crash, which means what am I to do with myself in this condition? You could stay here, he says, our one moment of trippy, nonverbal communication. He gets to his feet and sleepwalks out into the hallway, and I follow him to a little guest room just outside his. He mumbles something and heads back to his room and closes the door. A bed, a night table, a bureau, and a stereo. I'm saved. And my rational mind hasn't deserted me. I flick through a box of records on a small desk next to the turntable, clearly belonging to one of his sisters, in search of anything promising. Pablo Cruz, nope. The Carpenters, nope. Anne Murray, nope. America, nope. Grand Funk, nope. Leo Sayer, nope. The Eagles, nope. Hall and Oates, nope. Steve Miller, nope. Chuck Mangione, nope. Styx, nope. Boston, nope. 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 Frampton, nope. 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 Wings, nope. Chicago. Nope. Nope. But way in the back is Salvation, American Beauty. Thanks to Uncle Mike, who gifted us with Working Man's Dead in the summer of 1971, the Grateful Dead were as familiar as birdsong around Five Sherwood. American Beauty, released five months after Working Man's Dead, is the Grateful Dead's other undisputed classic. Yet I have never so much as held it in my hands or heard it play from start to finish. What a perfect bit of serendipity. And the Lysergic Rose on the cover is certain to reward deep contemplation. But first, I need a bathroom. Kruger's hallway ends in infinity. The walls, low lit by a nightlight, undulate like pizza dough, and when I peer down the corridor, I see delicate, intricate lattice work where ordinarily there would be darkness. Halfway to the bathroom, I spot a mirror on the wall. I stop and look, and it's heavy. The mirror edges slip away, and I'm on a bridge, watching myself go by. Old me, young me, devilish me, cool me with sideburns, female me, heroic me, pre-Raphaelite me, post-Raphaelite me. The frame is there and not there, and what I see in it depends entirely on what I choose to fill it up with. Just as a wave of fear threatens to take hold, a weirdly wise and patient voice speaks up from somewhere within the depths of me. Who's minding this door? Think of it as the person in charge of your mind, a behind-the-scenes figure, a less judgy superego who does not externalize under normal conditions, but is always there. The message from this wise and invisible ancient spirit inside is that there's nothing to fear. Even when the walls drop away, the most inner part of you won't disappear. It just won't. And I'm not afraid anymore. As I pee, I imagine an infinite line of cartoon droplets all lined up inside me like paratroopers, each waiting to add its infinitesimal essence to the mighty stream, happy to leap into the void, because nothing gold can stay. When you say, I am everywhere, or everywhere I am, 
I am nobody, therefore I am everything. Back in the little room, American Beauty is my spirit guide. Till the, morning comes. the dead never sound wiser or prettier or more reassuring. Every song, except Operator, Pigpen's contribution, which is nonetheless a pleasant excursion, seems to address me directly or obliquely. And yeah. Propped up on a pillow, a quilt covering my knees, I rise solely to turn the record over. Twice, maybe three times. On the final play, as I'm about to fall into brilliant embers of sleep, the juddering intro to Truckin' yanks me back, and I lurch out of bed to make the music stop. In a few hours, weirdly lucid, I steal away to face the new day. Next time, being close to Tom Petty is less memorable than getting laid.